Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. My name is Gabe Phillips. Welcome to church this morning and welcome to a brand new preaching series, Eternity Matters. But we are very excited about this. Really exciting. I want to ask you this morning, I really believe that God is going to help us and navigate a way forward in the series. I believe it's a really strategic series for us. But I want to ask you a question before we get going this morning. Uh, as the worship team uh, and the, the, the three brunettes led us in, in powerful worship. Where are the three brunettes? Did you guys see that? Eh? Come on. What number? Brunette one? Brunette two? Where's brunette three? Claire? Look at the baby. Just there we go. Dominating, but really, really cool. And then we, got, we had the gray. The, hey? The gray. Steve the gray. I loved it. It was beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. But uh, I, I want to say, as we worship and as Brett prayed and, and there's faith in the room here, I want to ask you a question now as we lean into the Word of God. Are you expectant? Okay, so five of you. Good. I want to ask you one more time. Are you expectant this morning, Life Changes? Come on. Because I really believe that if you expect much, you will receive much. If you expect little, you walk out with little. This thing is not about a man performing. This is us partnering together with faith in the Word of God. The Word of God colliding with our faith this morning. And as we lean in with faith, I want to say if, as we get vocal, as we are, we're not passive people, as we amen, as we take notes, as we lean in, everything of those, those nature is us posturing ourselves saying, Jesus, we believe that this is not just a man's opinion. This is your Word. And your Word, when it comes, changes our lives. So ask us one more time. Are you expectant? Yes. Come on. That's good news. So on that, no on that notion right there, I want to tell us about a, a, a group, a trio of men who uh, got together in the 70s, 1976 to be exact. And these three men, they, they joined up and started a fledgling company. Two of them were, were, were young guys who owed 45% shares in the company. And the older guy, the older third who joined the trio, he, he joined and he owned 10% of the company at its start. And the reason why they let these two guys, let this third older guy into the journey was because the two younger guys were, were actually, they defaulted on, on paying back the, the, their loans, so they themselves couldn't get another loan. So they had to get an older guy to come in and help get them a loan. And this older guy played a big brother type of role. He didn't really have a, a know what was really going on in the company, but he drew up the contract. He borrowed the 15,000 US dollars to start the company. And then a couple days older, this, a couple days later, this older guy named Ronald, shout out to Ronald at the back, this guy named Ronald realized that as he had leveraged his whole life into this, this company, he suddenly got cold feet because he really realized very quickly that if this company, this fledgling company based on a dream, based on an idea, if it went up belly up, the other two guys got away scot-free. He was the only one with any assets that would be taken by the bank. He was the only one who owned a house. He was the only one who, who owned a car. So the bank would not go after those two yahoos. It would come after him. So because of that, after 12 days in the business, owning 10%, Ronald, a man named Ronald Wayne, decided that actually it's time for him to sell his 10%. And he sold famously his 10% of a company called Apple for $800. Because the risk was too big. Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, the two young yahoos, the story writes itself, as we all know. And it's as painful to read as I can imagine it was painful for Ronald Wayne to live. Because the sum, somebody did the sums recently and said that his 10%, that now, that he sold for $800 then, would be worth $67 billion today. Living often in light of the moment is harder when we look back and see actually there's a bigger story at play. 
I want to suggest to you this morning, as we start a new series called Eternity Matters, a series about life, money, and eternity, what we are, in a sense, doing is we are play, doing a Google Maps type of look at our lives. I don't know if you know Google Maps. This is thirsty work already, guys. But when you want to find your location, you zoom in, you zoom in, you zoom in. I want to say in this series, as we look at the Word of God together, what we're doing is we're zooming out. We're zooming out. We're zooming out away from our anxieties, away from our trivial uh, the highs and lows from relational tensions, from, from financial matters, for things that cloud our vision too quickly. And we're zooming out so we can scope life and eternity from a distance to get a better narrative of what God is calling us to. In a sense, so that we, you and I, would spare ourselves from Ronald Wayne type moments, selling our, our, our eternal destiny short for a temporal pleasure. That actually we're going to be helping ourselves in this moment because there's so many people who are living for today, so many people who are wasting their lives. And actually I think the greatest sadness is not us looking back at Ronald Wayne going, Ronald Wayne, you missed out on $67 billion. If only you held the course. I think the greater tragedy is men and women who know Jesus Christ but actually miss the moment that they're living in. And years to come in eternity, people will say, why didn't you do what you should have done? Psalm 112 tells us, it'll be on the screen behind us, it says this, that the righteous shall be remembered forever. There's a promise from God saying the righteous shall be remembered forever. Not just by Ronald Wayne who's remembered by his mistakes and his big error of judgment, but it says the righteous will be remembered forever. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this, time is short, eternity is long. It is only reasonable that this short life be lived in light of eternity. So I've quoted David the psalmist, I've quoted Charles Spurgeon, so why not quote Russell Crowe from Gladiator? What we do in this life echoes into eternity. So I want to say this morning, as we lean in, we're going to do work. I hope you're ready to roll up your sleeves and lean into the Word of God. We are a robust people. We're going to do some work with the Scriptures this morning and for the rest of the series. But I want to take us to a passage that's found in the middle of what is famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if, if you've been in church for any length of time, you might have heard of this sermon, you might have read and breezed past it, but I want to tell you what the Sermon on the Mount is, a, a sermon that is quoted and held in such a high esteem by people such as Mahatma Gandhi, as, as, as presidents, as politicians alike around the world. This is not just something that has captured the imagination of Christians, this is seen as the speech of all speeches in a moment. But I want to hasten to the fact that I believe this sermon, when Jesus preached this, it was a revolutionary call to resistance and a new way. And in a sense, Jesus was calling us to a new way to be human. And he was calling humanity to not get locked up in its anxiety, its fears, and its pity worries, uh, but actually to zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, and get a glimpse of what God is doing in eternity. That's what we're helping us do this morning. So why don't we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you have got your Bibles, it'll be... Helpful to see it in the black and white, otherwise it will be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 6 this morning from verse 19. Are you all there? You all ready? You all looking at the screen? It says this, don't store up treasures. This is Jesus preaching. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. 
And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you, are, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Above all else, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for the words that your son Jesus preached two millennia ago. I thank you that they are as relevant then as they are today. I pray, Father, as these words come and collide with our hearts, collide with our present realities, our present anxieties, our present fears, our present insecurities, our present brokenness, I thank you, Father, that your word would start rebuilding and reframing our existence so that we would see what you see. I declare this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to help us navigate this text, because so often I think preachers, they'll preach a text and we'll have... We've seen it in isolation. We don't understand the big narrative of what God is doing. So I'm zooming out, zooming out, zooming out very quickly and taking us, as I often do, to the very beginning. Genesis 1, stick with me briefly, but Genesis 1 opens up with the narrative of a God who's not holding out on us, a God who's not a stickler, a God who's not a, 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 who's not a miser, but a God who from the get-go, before Adam and Eve had had a chance to do anything, from their first breath, he declares, I want to bless you. And he gives them bigness and blessing. He gives them the planet. From the very first page of the Bible, the relationship between God and man is God gives Adam everything. and says, the planet is yours. We have to understand this, that our father is not a father who's tight-fisted, but a generous, lavish, all-giving father. That is who he is, a father of blessing and bigness. But as I say again and again, you turn the page and you see the introduction of the second preacher, Genesis 3, and it's not long before the bigness and the blessing gets traded for betrayal and burdens. As in essence, a paraphrased way of seeing it is that the, as humanity has been given everything and Satan comes onto the scene and says, but God is, he's actually still holding out on you. He's actually not as good as he says. He's still holding something back from you. And from that moment, a spiral in, in the story of humanity kicks in as actually the wrestle for our heart of actually, is God good, who he says he is? Is God really that good? Is God really our provider? Is God really going to promise the, all the promises he says going to come through for me? And actually the enemy saying, God is not who he says he is. He's actually holding something back from you. He's holding something good from you that you yourself have to go and get. And this wrestle for our heart gets set in motion. 
and the humanity just goes lunges from one place of blessing and bigness to betrayal and burdens. And we find the story go play out in this way. In Genesis 12, God has to reframe it again for humanity. After the flood, he calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm wanting to reframe humanity again with my same promise, with my same blessing. So Genesis 12, verse, verse 1, he says, Abraham, I want to bless you. And I want to bless all the nations through you. God gives him blessing and bigness to a man who should have been disqualified. says, humanity, the game is still on. I still have everything for you. But we follow the narrative. And we see the nation of, of Israel and Abraham's family becoming bigger and bigger. But then if you follow the story all the way, end of Genesis, famine comes. And the enemy comes whispering, God is actually holding out on you. And the whole Israel nation goes down into Egypt. And the book of Exodus takes place. Exodus chapter 1, we find out that the whole nation has been in captivity for 400 years. 400 years, the nation who was made for blessing and bigness has been serving at the, at the, at the, the, at the pleasure, shall I say, of a foreign king, a foreign pharaoh. The Egyptian king there is, is, is enslaved the people and is driving them to make more and more bricks, to build the pyramids, to, to sustain the economy. And the God's chosen people who are made to rule the planet are subservient and enslaved. They're starting to be driven and defined by a system of this world. And for a long time, for 400 years, the Israelite nation is fed this narrative, you are what you produce. You are what you produce. All you're good for is churning out bricks for our economy. You are what you produce. And this narrative gets put into our psyche that this is who we are. And we see God then comes and sends a deliverer. The picture always goes from blessing to betrayal. And God now has to come after the betrayal and the burden. has to pull them out back into blessing. And he lets them go. He says, let my people go. They go and they go into the wilderness to worship him. And while the people are in the wilderness, the amazing narrative of that story is God as a provider. A people who are rebellious and stiff-necked, and yet God still provides. And in the wilderness, we see God providing for them even though they do not work for it. Providing every day manna and quail. But he says, actually, I want you to know, a people who have been defined by you are what you produce. And you have to sweat. Your, your, your identity is by your sweat and your effort. He says, I want to show you that actually in my kingdom, you get because I am good. But he says, I want you to learn to trust me. I have to re rewire these people saying, you cannot hoard and save the manna and quail. Because actually, every day I want to give you new food. But if you hoard it, it will become rotten and devoured by worms. But what does the Israel nation do? They hoard it. They have to gather it. The next day, ah, oh, because actually the enemy comes. God is holding out on you. Do you really trust him? In the wilderness, we see that actually for 40 years, it says their clothes didn't even wear out. This is a divine provision of what God is doing. In the wilderness, in the rebellion, God was saying, I'm still the God of Genesis 1. I'm the God who said, actually, you're going to live in blessing and bigness. This is the story of God for you. But the people of God, as always, listen to the voice of the second preacher, and they go back, and they say, actually, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back, because at least there we had graves. And they start being not satisfied with what God is providing, so they end up getting thrown out of the, in the, the system. God says, okay, cool, that whole, this whole generation will die out. God raises up Joshua and a new generation who go into the promised land. And the swing happens again as the people of God start to be defined by the blessing of God as the 12 tribes start to rule and reign. And we see David ascend to the throne. This is at a, a rapid speed, the Old Testament narrative. But we see the people of God, and still to this day they say David was the, the pinnacle there was the king of kings. The Jewish people say David was the one that we looked at because at that moment we saw the fullness of the blessing and bigness of God restored to the people of Israel. But again, 
the people get drunk on the blessing, and they start thinking, no, actually, we can make this happen. And then they go again, so God has to send a different people to deliver them, not a man who's taking them out of uh, slavery in the physical, but actually taking them out of slavery and putting them into a different type of slavery so they can understand God as provider. So the Babylonians come and take them into Babylon, and for 70 years, these people have to serve at a foreign king, a different form of Pharaoh. Another type of Pharaoh who renames them. All of those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were not their Jewish names. They were renamed and redefined by the way, the role they would play in that society. And they get renamed and refashioned about around the economies of this world. And they start, but there's a group of people who say, no, but we're going to hold our heads in this narrative. And this is the story that comes and goes, comes and goes. And actually, if you just follow church history and follow the, the trajectory of your life, but actually the system of this world will always try and remind us in a subtle way that actually you have to produce and then you have to consume. You have to then produce more and then you're going to consume more. And you've got to produce more and consume more. And this is the story of our world. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, the opposing culture, the, not the kingdom of God, but coming against the kingdom of God that says, I am never satisfied. I always demand more, and I always give little back. And that's what we get sucked into. We get sucked into, and actually we live from paycheck to paycheck, knowing that actually I've got to eat this and consume this paycheck and then wait for the next one, and we just try and make it through. And we get on the survival uh, rat race that we keep going, but end up we being a society who are marked by anxiety and worry and fear and smallness. We are the most anxious generation ever. The most medicated generation for depression and anxiety ever. And yet we think we're the most sophisticated. No, we've just bought into the age-old lie that he's holding out on us. We have to keep producing and we've got to keep consuming. We might not have a fear over us, but actually it's the fear of our age who says you are defined by what you do. You're defined by how hard you make, uh, how hard you work, and the amount of bricks you make. But here we find this, this Sermon on the Mount. It confronts in that day and age. Jesus, when he preached that Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't received with great fanfare. Wow. It was received on the back end because this is not some light and fluffy, hippie, let's, let's love and just enjoy life. This is Jesus declaring this is war on the, on the, 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 the spirit of this age. Jesus is coming against and confronting the spirit of this age. It's a controversial sermon then. It's a controversial sermon now. And I want to help us for this because I want to remind us again. You and I, sir, ma'am, I'm coming and confronting the spirit of this age to tell you, you were made for blessing and bigness. The narrative of Scripture and the heart of Jesus reminds me again and again that actually we were made for blessing and bigness and we were made to be preoccupied and possessed by eternal matters. So I want to help us. Three things from Matthew 6, 19 to 34. We're going to do work. Everyone all right? Three things from this scripture that Jesus says we must wage war with. And there are three things. If you read the scripture, the arc of verse 19 to verse 34, it's just a fascinating arc. Where you see, Jesus mentions three specific things that he says are neither inherently good or evil on their own. They're almost neutral things, but how what we deal with them determines whether they'll lead us to serve the age, spirit of this age or serve the kingdom of God. So first thing he says is he talks about treasures. Don't store up treasures here where moths and rust and thieves will eat, destroy, and steal, but rather store up treasures there in heaven, for where your treasure is, your heart will also be. See, it's amazing thing. Jesus in this, in this first salvo from this stanza, he tells us that our, our heart and our treasures are somehow divinely linked. We, we love to think that they're not. We love to have a spiritual box, and then I've got my physical material box. This is what I own, and this is my spiritual life. Jesus says, no, 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 those two are linked. 
Jesus says, get go, where your treasures, your heart will be. And, and this is the, quite a crazy thing. When he says our treasures, he's talking about our wealth, our salaries, our resources, our possessions, and the things that give us some semblance of earthly security, significance, and success. He says, those things that define you here, define your source of pleasure, your source of security, your source of success, those things are linked to your heart and are defining where you go. You see, let me say it this way. Uh, we're going to be preaching about money, and not, not because we are in need or because there's any other reason. We want to tell you that the reason we preach about money is because Jesus preached about money more than he preached about heaven and hell. And actually, when he preached about money, he always followed up by preaching about heaven and hell. <laughs> Why? Because money will, is, and, and the, is, is not just this neutral thing. It's actually it's this thing that unless we lay hold of it, the treasure of this earth will either lead us to the spirit of this age all actually help us influence the kingdom of God. It's this understanding here. And actually, I want to make some statements here. We are a people who do not believe the prosperity gospel. Thank you. What I mean by the prosperity gospel, it's prosperity gospel now, there's different forms of it, and, but it's prosperity gospel is basically a type of uh, setting up a system where God is a, a, your great uh, butler in the sky, and if you put enough money in, then he, a plus A will equal this, and God will give you blessings and health and wealth now. So I grew up with a phrase in our church. Literally, this was a phrase that defined our giving in Zimbabwe at times was people would get up and say things like this. You can't have Mercedes-Benz living if you have go-kart giving. Yeah. And, and we got excited. We're like, that sounds good. It's not biblical. But it feeds into our heart because actually I want to remind us that actually again and again, just I want to help us that actually he's Father God, he's not the Godfather. Let me just say it again. I want to help us because actually I think we can get suckered in saying if I just pay enough money or even not even just in money, we, the prosperity gospel is we get, oh, that's those type of guys. It's in our hearts. If I attend church enough times, if I pray enough prayers, why am I not getting sick? Not why am I not getting healthy? Because I pray, I did these things, God. He's saying, I'm not here making an arrangement because you did these things. I get to do those things. He's the Father. And actually, you want to say in the other, on the other vein, we don't believe the prosperity gospel. I don't believe the poverty gospel either. What I mean by the poverty gospel is actually you're more holy if you give everything away. You're more holy. The poorer you are, the holier you are. And I'm not saying that either, because that's also, for, if you want the terms, ascetic, and actually it's Gnostic. It's saying actually that money is evil, and goods are evil, and I don't want that stuff. No, 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 no. That's Gnostic. That's separating spirit. Jesus said spirit, treasures and hearts are linked. And he was saying it in a, in a, in a, in a good way, if you were, but where are you going to store them up? And here's the understanding for you and I, is that actually we don't believe the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel. We believe the gospel. If you have to put another word to define it, it's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ breaking out humanity, and though he was rich, he became poor so that we could become rich in him. So here's the understanding. The reason why we preach this thing is John Stott, a, a famous preacher, said this, worldly ambition has a strong fascination for us, and the spell of materialism is very hard to break. I want some scriptures just for you to go. We're gonna, I say we're going to do work. Matthew 19, verse 24, Jesus again speaking says this. I'll say it again. And I've underlined again, Jesus is speaking, so he's having to reiterate this to the people. Why? Because this is war. He has to hit this thing again and again because people we always forget and we always go with the spirit of the age. So he says, I have to say this again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's Jesus. 
We can try and explain it away, but that's what Jesus said. Jesus says, actually, it's hard for rich people to go to heaven. Was he putting a new, uh, a new hermeneutic about who Jesus and, and salvation? No, no, he was just saying, actually, so often, your wealth, if it's, not, if it's not understood in the kingdom light, your wealth will become your savior. Your wealth will become your comfort. Your treasures will become the pseudo thing that hold, make sure, actually, if the bank account's full, then I'm okay. And let's be honest, we're not too, all too far away from that. When I read rich, I'm often like, yeah, those rich guys, West Beach people. <laughs> you know who you are. But let's be honest. The stats say that actually everyone in this room will probably be in the 1% in the 1, 1 richest people in the world. Riches is always relative. But actually, the, if I just know my own heart, I know how quick my heart is just deviated from the kingdom of God and put it onto the worries of this world because of finance. Jesus is talking to that. Where are you putting your treasure? Where are you putting your hope? Where are you putting your trust? 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That last bit got me. Some people, out of a desire for wealth, the thing that pulls their heart, what's the thing? Now, often you go, hey, I want to make money. I want not evil on its own, but when that thing is dictating your trajectory of life, the Bible says some of those people have wandered from the faith because of finance. It's interesting. Just putting that out there. So I, there's a little thing that I've been thinking about this weekend. I'll be behind me now. But when Jesus, and this, uh, this whole analogy, and this whole text he's preaching, he puts this understanding in play, and basically saying, when the fear of tomorrow, is it that way? when the fear of today affects tomorrow. So actually, this whole narrative is the thing, I don't, I don't think that tomorrow, I'm not too sure what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if my boss is going to come through for me. So what do we do is we consume, and pride kicks in. Because I'm, I'm going to make this thing happen. I've got to be, you know, pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I've got to be a self-made man. I can make this happen. Come on. But also the alternative is when the fear of tomorrow affects today, because actually I don't know tomorrow what's going to happen. I'm, I'm a bit nervous. So what's the other response? Is we hoard and fear. And that's the narrative of most people. Can I tell you the pastoral concern in the series, why are we preaching this? Not just because, oh, we've got to preach about this every now and again. It's actually most marriages that come saying, actually, we're under pressure. One of the areas that is always under pressure is the area of finance. Not because we don't have enough, but because actually that thing has been mismanaged and our hearts have not been, have been given in the wrong places. This is not just about money. This links to marriage. It links to faith. It links to the mission of God. But Jesus puts in a new thing. He says, actually, Jesus takes out the word tomorrow. If you read his understanding of that text from the beginning to the end, Jesus starts off saying, send your treasures into eternity. And at the end he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today is enough troubles as it is. It's weird. Jesus takes tomorrow out of the equation and links today with eternity. He's putting a new system in you and I, not operating about today and tomorrow, today and tomorrow, today and tomorrow. Because that's what the world says. You are what you produce and you are what you consume. So live for today and make just enough for tomorrow and that's enough. When Jesus says, no, you live for today, but you live in light of eternity. And when those things are linked, we become a people, the language we use, we become a people who steward the finance God gives us because he gives us to us and we sow into eternity. I just find that helpful. Uh, maybe it's not good for you. 
You see, in this understanding is for me, and something just I want to hammer on very quickly is this has helped me frame it because I've come from a family that grew up in a prosperity gospel preaching type uh, church environment, but in a nation that had the economy collapsing. So it was quite weird. The pastors got richer and the people got poorer. So it was just really weird and trying to make sense of this in an economy that did, that promised much but never ever delivered. And actually, people said, actually, just trust God, just give enough. If you just give enough, then you'll be enough. And, and I'm saying there was truth, there's truth, and actually, we, we give. We faithfully give despite what we see. But actually, the reality and what we were saying is, for my family, actually, my journey is I've had to break out of a poverty-type mentality of actually, I don't know if there will be enough. So I've got to keep that going. And I, but I praise God for, for what God has done in my life. And, and for just that's one illustration. I've, I've, I've only got a few stories. Sorry, I've only lived one life. I apologize. I'll try to live a couple others just for the sermons. But, uh, but when, I was, when I was about 18 and I had my heart set on to go on a missions trip to the Congo, and I didn't understand the finances and the family, but my parents came, and I remember I had this, for time's sake, the story, I'll be quick with it, is I said, I really want to go. And my parents said, that's great. And I just don't know. But in retrospect, I realized there was no money for me to go on a five-week trip to the Congo. Flights, food, accommodation, there was no funds. So my family... To an 18-year-old, this doesn't make sense. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, this was a, a decision against the spirit of the age. A family that lived quite tight on the breadline, moving from Zimbabwe here, having everything taken away, living on that today, tomorrow spectrum. My parents made a decision. They sold our second car to fund my trip to the Congo. Obviously, it wasn't a really good car. But they did that in faith. I didn't understand it as an 18-year-old, the significance of it. But for some reason, cars have played quite a strategic role in my life. I think God is trying to do something in my heart. Because when I moved here in faith from Durban to Cape Town, I suddenly was like, I'm going to go there, but I don't have a car. I was moving here too. And on the, one of the last weeks before I moved down here, a family from Durban phoned me and said, listen, we want to come to your house. They arrived and they said, here's some keys. This car is yours. And I was like, what do you mean it's mine? And again, I fully didn't appreciate the moment. But another family, in res- no, no, there's no quid pro quo, a family who's not really connected with my, but they actually said, we love your faith. We want to invest a car into your future. And they gave one of their cars to me. And something, and I remember thinking at that time, they must be really rich to do that. I, I remember thinking, they must be really rich. Really, who gives cars away? Rich people. West Beach people. <laughs> if you're from West Beach, lovely to have you here. But the amazing thing is that stuck in me, and I've told the story already. I don't want to, but just it's God is doing something in me, because at the end of last year, we suddenly got to the stage where my wife said to me, "We need to give our our car away. We need to give it away." And I remember it, the the logic of it. I understood the faith move, but for two months I wrestled in my heart because I'm going. We've just finished paying that car off. We've just finished paying that car off, and actually now that, ex- that extra money a month will actually be amazing. It's not like we've got, whoa, this margin, why not? It's like, we're just making through, this will be able to help us to breathe every month. And actually, we're just having a second child. Surely that doesn't make sense. Lord, I wrestled with it, and I put spiritual language in it. But then I've realized that actually God wasn't really caring about a car. He was going, I care about your heart. And actually, your treasures are linked to your heart, because in eternity, no one's going to be talking about a Hyundai i20. But my heart, Jesus says, I don't want you to suck it into this today, tomorrow cycle. Do you trust me? And God is always doing it. I, I, I like to phrase it. We gave away our first car in January. I say that because I really believe God says, I'm going to give away cars. And do you know what the reason? When I, st- when I realized we did, I said, wow, it must mean we're rich now. 
because that's what rich people do. But that is good preaching because actually I was made for blessing and bigness. If I understand Genesis 1, I understand actually I can have my hand open. I'll give away something. Stewarding and sowing into eternity. And I've heard stories of other people who do similar things in this church. And I want to say I want to kindle that fire. I've heard of people who paid for wedding rings in this church. People who've, who've done extravagant things. And I go, let's be those type of people. Rich people. Genesis 1 people. Or we can be Genesis 3 people who are nervous, hoard, produce. I am what I make. I'm just going to keep it close. Or we can be actually on the nature of God I'm going to give. Firstly, treasure. Secondly, for time's sake, eyes. Jesus talks about treasures. Then he talks about eyes. The eyes are the lamp of the body. If they're good, then the whole body will be good. If the eyes are bad, the whole body will be bad. Just this weird analogy. But a quick story. Warren Buffett. Anyone or pronounced, if he's fancy, Warren Buffet. One of the wealthiest men in the world a few years back with Bill Gates at that time. This man, the story of his wealth says, the narrative was, he says, when he was 10 years old, he went to a business lunch with his dad, and there was a guy there, a really wealthy man, who walked in in a fancy suit with gold cufflinks, sat down, and, and, and the way the people treated that man, they said, in that moment, when Warren Buffett saw that man walk in as opposed to his dad, and the way the staff treated that man as opposed to his dad, he saw that man in the suit and said, whatever that man's life is, I want that. And from the age of 10, a vision for his life and finance was put inside of him based on what he saw. And he gave everything to do that. Now, I don't want to make comments whether that's good or bad, but I want to tell you that actually for you and I, are, are we allowing our eyes to be gripped by eternity or by what we see in the here and now? In Genesis chapter 2, 3, if we go there again, it'll be on the screen behind me. Eve, in the moment of deception, trading Genesis 1, bigness and blessing for burden and betrayal in Genesis 3. The moment came, it says, when she took a bite of the fruit, it says, she saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And then it says, goes on and says, and her eyes were opened and they felt shame. There's some significance and connection. Jesus is talking about treasures. It's almost weird. If you read that text, treasures, then there's worries, seek first the kingdom. And in the middle, there's this thing is the eye is good and the body is like, what? I don't know how to match this. All like Jesus went on a tangent. No, no, no. He was this masterful preacher taking people saying, actually, your treasures are linked to your heart and your eyes are linked to your inheritance. I want to say, what are you putting before your eyes? Are we a people? I, I pray. I do this often. So I'm the first one who indicts my own heart. Pray and long to see revival. But my eyes are full of Instagram stories, Pinterest boards, Netflix binging. What, are, what am I fueling my eyes? What am I putting in front of them? There's a man named Jonathan Edwards. That's my child. Oh, there we go. Nice Benji. Nice Benji. He's a cute lad. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher in the 1700s, and he prayed this prayer often. And it's one I'm terrified to pray, but I'm starting to pray. It is this. He said, God, stamp my eyeballs with eternity. He went to a, a town that had, uh, that had never seen revival. The town was dead in spiritual things, and he gets there one Sunday, and he arrives, and the, and the guy who's about to preach says, you're here. No, you must preach. I can't, I can't move these people. These people are dead in the pews. So Jonathan Edwards got up. There were 500 people, and the, the, the indictment about them was they were indifferent and lacking decency, the congregation that came to listen to him preach. He said he searched through his satchel looking for a sermon to preach until he found one that he'd only preached once before but actually hadn't hit the mark with his congregation at home. So he thought, let me give it another try. And it's a sermon, a famous one, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And that Jonathan Edwards, if you go find some of the, the, the narratives about his preaching, it says that he read his sermons. He was no charismatic Pentecostal preacher who got, high, who got the band going. No, this was a guy who stood behind the pulpit and in monotone fashion read his text. Just read the sermon, read the sermon. But the, the, the people who watched it said he read it but with tears in his eyes. And the whole story of this moment, this moment that, that sparked what was known as the Great Awakening that happened in the, most de the deadest space in America spiritually, it says that as he was preaching the sermon with this prayer, reverberating and stamp my eyeballs with eternity, says that tension and tears started welling up in the people, in the congregation. So much so that at the height of a sermon, just as the moment now as I'm going, people in the congregation started to yell out, how can I be saved? Just there was disorder and chaos started happening as people just started to yell out. It says the people started to cling to the posts and to their seats as if their seats were sl slipping away into the very depths of hell. People holding on, and shrieks and cries were rising up. And at that moment, the spark came as people, one after another, they said they closed the meeting. For four hours, they led every single person to the Lord Jesus. I, I pray that prayer for you and I, and I, I want to tell you, stamp my eyeballs with eternity. Not with lesser things, smaller things that just subdue us, and banal entertainment that seduces us on a path of producing and consuming. Third thing, thinking. Treasures, eyes, thinking. I, I would say the enemy has hijacked our minds and our thought lives, which are meant to be preoccupied with things from above and eternal mysteries, and he's hijacked them with earthly concerns. If you go read this text at home. For time's sake, please go read it. But here's Jesus' sermon on worry. If you want to go download Jesus' podcast and listen to his sermon, his sermon series on worry. This is how Jesus basically does a sermon on worry. Don't. <laughs> Amen. That's Jesus' sermon on worry. Don't worry. The apostle Paul just thought he needed some exposition of that. So he said, don't worry. And if you do, pray. Amen. That's Paul and Jesus on worry. What is going on here is actually the fact is, the Jesus in the text said, these worries dominate the minds of unbelievers. Small worries. But actually the small worries, let's be honest, are the things that are dominating my mind. Food, drink, what's happening with the paycheck? What's, that, what's happening next month? Where, where's the income coming? What's going to happen? But Jesus said, no, those are for unbelievers. You're a different people. You're Genesis 1 people made for blessing and bigness. So I want to say, what you worry about shows me what you are worshiping. What you worry about shows me where you think your provision comes, is coming from. If your mind is consumed with salary things of income of this it shows me that actually you think your provider the person who gives you joy peace fulfillment satisfaction is not your heavenly father but it's an earthly boss this is jesus not me so i want to say as i land this thing there's three things quick things i want to bring us as the whole text comes to its culmination it says jesus thrusts us towards his vision for eternal blessing and bigness by getting us to the hinge verse he says your treasures are linked to your heart your eyes are linked to your destiny your thinking will determine where you're going actually is it are you going to live for small genesis one bigness and blessing or for burning and betrayal genesis three type reality which way are you going to go and he gets to the big uh, the, the, cr the crux of the matter where he says this above all else Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be added to you. He'll provide all your needs. So Jesus is not saying, no, actually, you're not going to get anything. Don't just ascetic, just, you know, just give everything away, and you'll be beaten down. You can just be poor. No, he says, I will provide, but it's from a different source. 
So I want to tell us, number one in that text, there's a priority. He says, above all else. Above all else, there's a priority. For me, can I tell you, my priorities are given away by my phone every day. So Fiona, and I, the other day we said, swipe left, and you can see the stats of how many hours you spent on your phone and on what apps you spent your phone. It is scary. And if I want to say above, if you want to say, Gabe, what's your above all else? I'll say, Jesus, of course. But then I swipe left. I go, no, but there was a couple of hours on social media feeds. There was an hour on YouTube videos. There was this, uh, an hour on WhatsApp. So, yeah, but, but you know, just interesting. My phone gives me away. Can I tell you, my bank, my bank statements give my heart away. Above all else, but I see what all my payments are going towards, what all the entertainment things, just, just some thoughts. My conversations give away my heart. But you see, on the back of Jesus talking about don't worry about what you should eat and what you're going to wear, he speaks to an anxious and distracted and imprisoned people, and he says you're going to need to get an above all else priority. If you want to be freed from the system of this world, we have to get an above all else priority. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal that Christ Jesus has called me towards. A famous scripture, but what helps me understand it is that word goal in, 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 the, in the original language is the word slopos. S-L-O-P-O-S, slopos. I press on for the slopos. And what that was, it was a vivid imagery, was actually in the, in the Romanian world that he was writing to, was in the, in the, in the Colosseums, they would have a big race to, for entertainment of the Caesar, where they would have a massive goal, a massive slopos, which was this massive pole that was at the end of the race. And a whole horde of people would say, go! And everyone was like just crazy Mad Max type style as everyone's pushing past each other, sprinting with everything they can, like tripping people next to them, climbing over people. And there's no politeness in this because whoever got to the slopos first got their freedom. So when you understand, Paul says, I press on, I strain for the goal. You understand where the straining comes from. It's not this, ah, laissez-faire, we'll see what I go. No, no, I'm pressing on for the goal. And actually, as I was thinking about this, we think about earthly people, Olympians, who from the age of six all the way through, they give up, they're eating certain things, they put new diets in place, they put new training regimes, they don't go to parties, they don't do these things. Why? Because they've got a goal. When I'm 23, I'm going to run one way race for 10 seconds, and I'm going to win it and get a gold medal. That will fade and will get lost in a draw, and I'll become just a fact on Wikipedia. But they give up their whole life for that goal. But we're a people who can say, actually, we've got a different goal, an eternal one, one that's not going to spoil, perish, or fade. But actually, I'm not going to put my goal, my hopes, and salaries, and, and promotions, and advancements. Actually, those things aren't bad. Those are good things. But when they're put and stored in the kingdom of God, when actually our eyes and our thinking of God are eternal matters, there's a goal for you and I. Eternity matters. Olivia's riding her little pushback these days, and it's quite fun, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of noise, but she's all over the show, head is down, there's left, right, left, right, it's, it's like quite dramatic and terrifying at the same time, but I've had to teach her, I'm teaching her actually, Olivia, on the line, and look ahead, Lives, because that line doesn't stay straight, you've got you to find a focus, you've got to find your, your perspective, you've got to find where you're going, Olivia, but actually for her to learn that this thing has to be connected to this thing, is huge. It's no different for you and I. I want to say in this moment, you and I have to get a goal because actually Paul's big goal, goals are coming to land is that Paul's great vision, he said, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I think many Christians have reversed that and said, to live as gain, to die as Christ. 
What I mean by that is to live, make as much as I can, make the most of this lifetime. When I die, I've got insurance, I'll go to heaven because of Christ. Jesus said, no, to live is Christ. Everything here on this side of eternity is for that day in eternity. And when I die, it's gained because I get to see my inheritance. Too many people are surrendering inheritance then for an inheritance now. There's a pursuit. Above all, I'll seek. And I want to say, I'll land in this place, but this is not a dead, passionless thing. C.S. Lewis said, it's not that your desires are too strong, it's rather they're too weak. Somebody called it functional atheism, saying I'm a Christian but really living no different than those who aren't. The curse of humanity is this, that set in motion in Genesis 3. We live for all our days seeking fortune, seeking fame, but in eternity none of heaven knows my name. In eternity, Jesus won't congratulate you on your comfortable retirement. Well done. You worked hard and retired well. No, A.W. Tozer says, throw down the lure of white picket fence Christianity and pick up the danger-encircled path of obedience. You see, this, war is, this world is warring against us. The iPhone that you bought, that you're so proud of, six months is out of date. The car you bought devalues and as soon as you drive it out the lot, everything is warring against you. Everything is pushing you to produce more, consume more, live for today, live for tomorrow, live for today to tomorrow. And we get more anxious, more fearful, and more small. When actually eternity needs to be our goal, needs to be our slopos, needs to be our aim. And we strain for that thing with our eyes, with our thinking, with our treasures. Not my treasures, it's all yours, Jesus, because it's linked to my heart. This is what's supposed to be, and there needs to be a pursuit in our hearts. I want to tell you, if the opinion of man is your pursuit, it will let you down. The crowds that celebrated Jesus crucified him a week later. That thing is fickle. But we live for an eternal one who says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is old school preaching that needs to fire our hearts again. Can I tell you, the fire of God needs to fill our hearts again. It needs to call us because Moses was called by fire. Elijah called down fire. Elisha made a fire. Micah prophesied fire. Jesus said, I came to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And the church in Acts 2 was birthed in fire. Not from procedures and protocol, but in fire. Somebody once said the church was birthed in drunkenness and over the centuries has slowly sobered up. And we've got more respectable as we go. But this is not about respectability. This is a pursuit, a passion thing. And I want to tell you, it has to be something that grips us. And the church of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of it needs to be, we have to be motivated by two types of fire, Holy Ghost fire and hell fire. Eternity matters. I don't have time to get into this, but actually heaven is real, hell is real. It's not metaphorical. Theologians love to do their work these days to make it metaphorical, to make it less passionate, to make us devoid of his power. But actually, if you go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, there's a war at, at hand. And we have to choose our response. This whole thing says, seek above all else, priority. Seek, it's a pursuit. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, there's a person. This thing makes sense and this thing is not just about froth and bubble and passion and spitting and let's do this thing. Give everything away. Have my car. He has my house. It makes sense when we understand that there's a person named Jesus who's the priority, who is the pursuit. Now I want to say when we find Jesus to be our all-surpassing eternal joy and treasure, our treasures, our eyes, our thoughts, 
can't help but go back to him again and again and again. See, the great news is that we don't have a God who's holding out on us. We don't have a God who's saying, get to the goal and in eternity, then I'll only reward you. We have a God who says, I have already provided everything you need for this journey. Ephesians 1 says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We've been told we've been given everything for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. We have a, a, a Savior who's neither one holding out on us or saying actually one day when. He says there is promises, there is inheritance is there, but actually it kicks in now. Eternity is not just a time and place. It is a person. It's me. It's Jesus. And he needs to captivate our attention. He needs to captivate our wallets. He needs to captivate our thoughts and our eyes because eternity matters. Can we stand to our feet? I want to pray for us. I feel it's the appropriate way to land. I, I hope you're here. My heart is consumed with these things. It's consumed with these things. When I pray for this church, I, I have long abandoned the prayers for God give us success. Praying, God, give us significance, eternal significance. Earthly success gets applause of man. Earthly success gets people saying, well done. Look how great your church is. Look how great your impact is. I don't want to pray for that. I want to pray for significance. Because my prayer, my fear, the thing that haunts me is that one day in heaven, I pray that I won't, we won't have stories of Ronald Wayne lurking around. You did what? You cashed in too early. You sold your inheritance for what? For such a short-term gain, you settled for the rat race, for the produce, consume reality when actually there was eternal pleasures? Why? I say, not us, God, not us. So my prayer for you and I, if we can close our eyes, is this one prayer, and I'm not going to get all charismatic or excited because I feel the vein of Jonathan Edwards that just needs to have the Spirit of God in our hearts. Can you pray this prayer? Say, stamp my eyeballs with eternity. Surrender your treasures, your eyes, your thinking to him in this moment. If your heart has been gripped with fear and anxiety and smallness, I believe Jesus is wanting to call us out of Genesis 3 response systems where our eyes and our feelings and our emotions and our money and our treasures dictate how we go, but actually say, Jesus, I live for you. And above all else, a priority, a pursuit, and a person named Jesus. Jesus, I pray one more time for every single person here. Stamp our eyeballs with eternity. If you're here today and you say, Gabe, as you preached, my heart is dead. My heart is dull. My heart is bored with what you're saying. I pray right now, Spirit of the living God, quicken every heart. Quicken every heart with the urgency of this hour, the urgency of this moment. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and see Christ rises upon you. I thank you, Jesus, you're awakening a slumbering bride to lay hold of eternal things because eternity matters. Stamp our eyeballs with eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.